folks, we're in a, we're, we're in kind of a sub series of first Corinthians that deals with uh, sexual ethics. And, um, this is a message that in one way or another, um, or this subject matter that we're going to talk about today is, is something that, uh, it's been in my heart to preach about for years. Uh, we've talked about it before in different possible sermon series. One of the reasons why we chose First Corinthians, we talked about it before, is because so many of the issues the Corinthians were dealing with inside their church and outside their church resonate with us. And this issue is probably as great as any of the issues in the book that will resonate with us and resonate with us in our culture right now. And today we are going to talk about the very delicate issue of same-sex attraction. And God's view of same-sex relationships and homosexual, heterosexual relationships. Just a forewarning, I've, I've sent out an email. We've talked about this just to let kids know, or you parents know, that for, for you who have kids, this might be particularly sensitive. I'm going to, hopefully, God willing, you'll see, I won't be saying anything graphic in nature. Um, but I will be using those words and those terms. Uh, but we won't be talking about anything that hopefully um, would be disturbing for you to hear beyond the issues that we're all being uh, kind of we're all seeing each day in the news and in court cases and in our homes and in our own hearts, depending on, on where our struggles are. So um, I think this is something that's really important to talk about. I think we've got to talk about it as a church. I think churches have to be taught in this from the Bible. So as as maybe difficult as it might be, we, uh, for some folks, this is really something that, that is right front and center in our lives. If it's not something we, we, we might struggle with personally, it's something that uh, it's going to be an issue at work in school, um, as we'll talk about here. So the, the passage is, is the one we've been looking at for a while. Um, and I've kind of broken it down into a couple of different, um, segments, but we're going to go all over the place in the Bible. We're going to go to several different places, but we're going to start with this passage as a, as a topical introduction to explain why are we talking about this? Because it's right here in first Corinthians six. Um, and in there in first Corinthians six verses 10 to 20 with some pieces taken out, Paul writes, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, uh, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the spirit of a God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray just for a moment. Lord, I'm so grateful for your word. Uh, I, I do sense that you met me, Lord, as I prepared. And Lord God, that you gave me grace to see some things uh, better and more clearly. And I prayed this morning you would help me, Lord God, to speak with love, with honor, with uh, discretion, uh, with carefulness. I pray that every heart in this room would be blessed by these words, would not be feel condemned by these words. And that you would be kind, Lord God, to deal with this issue in our midst the way that you would if you were standing right here in physical form as the Lord Jesus. To bring your courage and bring your love to bear, Lord, onto our hearts. Bring your courage and your love to bear for our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The title of the message is, You Are Not Your Own. A courageous love, and you can, that's okay if you don't, um, courageous love in an age of sexual di- disorder. Because that, that's really, I think, uh, as I'll say in a few in moments, courageous love is, is what's called for in our response to this. When it comes to sexual ethics, the times are changing very, very, very quickly. Ten years ago, Barack Obama, believe it or not, our last president before uh, President Trump ran for office opposing 
same-sex marriage. Did you know that? That his platform was in opposition to the legalization of same-sex marriage. President Obama said marriage is one man, one woman. And that's what he believed. And that's what he believed the law should reflect. And of course, he changed just a few years later. And a few years after that, the conservatively led, the conservatively led Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage for the whole nation in one decision. Joining several other nations in overturning thousands of years of marriage ethics across almost all cultures and all nations throughout all of human history. A few days ago, just a few weeks ago in our own state, Governor Larry Hogan, a Republican, by the way, I'm not going to get into politics. I'm just saying this is this is all over the place. It doesn't matter where you are on the on the political map necessarily. He signed into law a bill making it a crime, making it a crime for any mental health professional to try to help minors move away from homosexual desires towards heterosexual desires, even minors who want it. So if you're a young person who wants to be able to move away from same-sex desires towards opposite-sex desires, Maryland says it's a crime for any mental health professional to help you. It's not binding on churches or different spiritual leaders necessarily. It's, it's more ambiguous, but um, about I don't know exactly how the law will affect that. But that just happened a couple of weeks ago. Our kids are entering a world where their fellow boys and girls are being taught that Gender is a choice and not an issue of natural law, not an issue of biology. You can be a boy if you'd like, regardless of your body and vice versa. Importantly, it has become the ethical norm. Listen, it is becoming and has become the ethical norm in all our culture to view basic Christian beliefs on the issue of sexual ethics as bigotry, as hateful oppression and as morally repugnant. So it's not just a matter of we disagree, we agree to disagree. The, the cultural spirit of our age is that traditional Christian beliefs are more and more being seen by the mainstream culture, not left-wing groups, by the mainstream culture as bigoted, oppressive, and morally, morally repugnant. Even more personally, same-sex attraction and gender confusion is not something outside the church that we're all wholly huddling against. It's, it's in our own hearts. It's in our schools, our workplaces, our family, our churches. It's in our own hearts. Um, since I've been serving in Christian ministry, um, I think it's safe to assume I've never been in a local church where some members don't struggle with same-sex attraction, same-sex desires. Some of my closest friends throughout my life, fellow pastors, have struggled with this attraction to people of the same sex um and we'll talk about that a little bit later at the end they're also i would say without a doubt some of the best people i've ever met in my life but what's our response to all this what's our response to us on one hand some would have us look at this issue primarily in terms of culture war we, we must put our hope and our energy into political powers to hold back the tide of morality and hold back the tide of religious discrimination that we feel encroaching upon us. Or we must seclude ourselves as much as possible from the culture that grows more and more unrecognizable to us. If we struggle in this area ourselves, we simply have to do our best to fight in the dark and keep this shameful issue to ourselves. Going to the other side, some would like to see this issue in terms of relevance and love trumps all and say the church must recognize the Bible's teachings are either outdated or misinterpreted 
or, or trumped by other more weighty considerations of mercy and compassion. And we must embrace this new sexual ethic and recognize God is love and calls us to accept all sexual preferences. And I would propose that the answer lies in neither of those options, neither huddling up under hopes and political powers and keep ourselves uh, sheltered from the culture upon us and neither compromising ourselves and moving towards accepting things that the Bible says God's heart breaks over. But it's this third way of loving courage, the reality of the sexual desire. I'm sorry, the sexual disorder that we're all becoming much more and more and more aware of. Or personally have struggled with. It requires loving courage. It requires loving courage. I say courage because our response has to be rooted in faithfulness to God above all else. Our response can't be an issue of what the culture thinks or what the culture wants. But what God's word, which reflects his eternal commitment to his glory. And the holiness and the goodness of his creatures tells us we must do. I say courage because our response has to be rooted in the promises of God who gives power for his people to change, for his people to stand in purity, for his people to stand in the face of fear of what others might think or do to them above all things. Even if it costs us the sexual fulfillment we desire now, even if it costs us our jobs, our freedom to align our hearts and testimony with his truth without having to go to prison or be fired. But I also say it must be loving. It has to be a love rooted in the recognition that we are all infected with sexual disorder. We are all infected, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, we're all affected with the deadly disease of selfish and sin and distortion in our desires in this way. We have no option to stand self-righteously towards others. I say love because Christ didn't come to call the healthy, but the sick. And we're all sick. That just as the son of man comes to save and seek the lost, so must those who are filled with his spirit be of the same mind and heart. I say love because at one time before Christ was our husband, before we were his bride, we were all courted by a God, even as we lived our our rebellion before we trusted him. And at that time, when we were outside of him, but beginning to hear his voice, he did not call us to live holy lives by grace that we did not yet have the grace to do. He took us by the hand and sometimes slowly led us into that grace and the holy life it empowers. I say love because basically that's, I feel like maybe that was a little confusing. I'm saying we, we can't look at the world and expect them to live by the standards that God's called us to live by as his committed people who have filled with his Holy Spirit so we can do it. And I say love because we want our church to be a place where seekers of Jesus who are caught up in this life, who haven't yet changed their mind about it, they should know that our concern is more with their soul's satisfaction in Christ. They should know that our concern is more with their soul's safety than our cultural comfort in here. You see what I'm saying? Today, we're going to cover the courage part more. And next week, we'll talk a little bit more on the love part. So I I really have one big goal in the courage part. I really want to use today to hopefully, by God's grace, help us understand just the basics of what really is God's view on this issue. Because if we're going to stand with courage, with God's word, for God's people, for the lost, 
and give them anything worthwhile that's different than what the world's give them, we have to see what God's saying. We have to really be convinced of it. So that's what I'm hoping I can do today. Focus on the courage part particularly and say, what does God really say about this? Can we really stand up as Christians with integrity and say, God calls us to live a different way. So hopefully you'll leave here empowered to at least see that better or have more questions. One of my hopes is that this message today will percolate a bunch of questions in you. I talked to um, a couple of kids this week and they were telling me about their experiences at their school. It was so different than my experience so quickly. You know, uh, this girl is saying she's not really a boy or this boy is saying you should be a boy. It was just like, what in the world? So you guys especially younger people, you probably have a bigger, better beat on this issue than I do. So as things come up, if you're like, well, why didn't he cover that? Why didn't he ask that? Would you please write me? Would you please tell me? And if you don't have an email account, would you please ask your parents to write me? Say, I have this question about it. And maybe we can come back to that next week. Or maybe we can have an email or a change or a phone call about it. But if any questions occur to you that aren't covered today, I'd love to hear it. That really should go with any message, but particularly this one. So what does God say about homosexuality? What does God say about same-sex behavior? Here's what God says. God declares same-sex behavior, homosexual behavior, a sin without qualification. He's opposed to it in all its forms. And we're going to do a brief survey through Scripture. Then we're going to unpack some of these passages particularly. But that's God's view on it. That's what I'm here to present to you. That God declares it a sin. That this behavior of same-sex lifestyle is not um, something he intended and it's not something that he approves of and it's not something that he accepts. Let's do a brief survey. First, starting in Genesis 19, 1 through 30, we won't read that story, but it's an awful story of, of significant depravity in this regard. It's a violent depravity. It's a rageful depravity. And God's judgment comes upon a city, Sodom, that uh, it's clear it's connected with that behavior and those desires and that depravity. So I'm not going to read that story today, but that's a narrative. And that's one of the first places where we see so clearly that God, even before the law of Moses, God did not attend this. Um, later comes the law of Moses in Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 20.13. We see clear commands against same-sex behavior. Leviticus 20.13 says, if a man lies with a man as with a woman, that's talking about the, uh, the, the sexual act. Both of them have committed an abomination. And they shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now notice here, there's no exception for the quality of their relationship. Short-term relationship, long-term relationship. It, it's irrelevant. The, their love for each other, their commitment to each other, monogamy. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have any sense of compassion or thoughtfulness about that. I'm just trying to tell you what God is saying here. God isn't talking about the quality, duration, commitment level of the relationship. The focus is not on that. It's on the activity itself. And the activity itself is expressly forbidden. Now let's consider the New Testament. Some critics argue Jesus never spoke on homosexuality. Specifically. That's absolutely true. He, I, in my Bible, I don't have any words from Jesus specifically about this specifically. But he never spoke about child sacrifice. He never spoke about the slave trade. He never even spoke about idolatry. At least as I understand it's recorded in scripture. But nobody would try to tell us that Jesus is for child abuse, idolatry, heroin addiction, the slave trade. 
And the reason Jesus did not speak on those things, including same-sex behavior, is probably that in large measure, those sins were not mainly predominant in Israel at the time of his coming. If he'd been born at another time, he might have spoken against child sacrifice. But God had purified the nation from child sacrifice. It had happened in Israel's history. But by the time Jesus came, idolatry, specific, literal, we're going to bow down to this statue or this Asherah pole, it had been eradicated from the nation. So Jesus didn't speak to things that weren't contemporaneously something to engage. And that's the answer to why he didn't speak about same-sex behavior. But what we know for sure is that Jesus accepted the Old Testament book as inspired and inerrant. Scripture says in John 10, 35, that Jesus himself proclaimed his words. The scriptures cannot be broken. That's Jesus saying this whole book, this whole, the, the law and the prophets, it is God's holy word, reliable and true. In Matthew 5, Jesus proclaimed that not one jot or tittle from the law was to be abrogated. And then he proceeded to proclaim the deep heart truth of the law. In Matthew 5, he proclaimed, Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was endorsing again the entire Old Testament. Jesus spent his whole ministry quoting and explaining the heart of the Torah and the Tanakh, the law and the prophets. There's no possibility that Jesus would have supported same-sex behavior. Because he was an Old Testament endorser. He believed the Bible. He didn't talk about everything in the Old Testament, but in everything he says, he endorses the entire package. When he condemns sexual immorality in Matthew 5, Matthew 15, and Matthew 19, Jesus uses this word porneia. You can hear how we get some of the words we use today. Porneia is a word that's inclusive of all categories in the Old Testament, from my understanding, involved in sexual sin. All categories. Pornea isn't adultery only. It's not premarital sex only. It's this big bucket with every kind of sexual aberration, including same-sex behavior. So when Jesus said marriage is inviolable, marriage is indestructible except for cases of pornea, he meant except in cases that include same-sex behavior. When Jesus condemned divorce in Matthew 19, he positively proclaimed what God did to create sexual union in marriage. Okay, so positively speaking, in Matthew 19, he is opposing divorce, but he's trying to show, before he says that, why Jesus created sexual union, why Jesus created sexuality. And this is key. Jesus is explaining marriage. And listen, he doesn't start with, for this reason, a man leaves his father and cleaves to his wife. That's the Genesis reference in Genesis 3. He doesn't start there. No, to explain sexuality, to explain the one flesh union of marriage. Here's what he says. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? In justifying marriage, Jesus does not start with what man does. He starts with what God does. And what God does is create two different sexual beings who come together as one. It is their very separateness that makes their coming together so amazing and so glorious. And a picture of the the oneness and the plurality in the Trinity itself. Now, Jesus may not have encountered many same-sex issues, but when Paul the Apostle was sent out of Israel into Greece, 
He entered a very different culture than the one that Jesus lived in, where sexual freedom expression was rampantly different and way, 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 way more. Well, it was not conservative to put it in our parlance today. In our series in 1 Corinthians, Paul is speaking to a culture, the series we're in right now, that was extremely familiar, extremely comfortable with same-sex relationships. And I don't want to go into detail, but suffice to say, it was not unusual at all. It was not scandalous at all to practice among the Gentiles in Greek culture to have same-sex relationships. But, in keeping with God's moral laws that we've just talked about, in keeping with Jesus' heart about sexuality and God's purpose in it, Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 6, this chapter we're in right now, he uses two Greek words, two different words to describe different aspects to cover it exhaustively of sexual activity between uh, two men. And some will object that Paul means only male relationships or only promiscuous ones. He could not have... Uh, had long-term monogamous same-sex marriage in mind. That doesn't work. Because in the Hellenistic culture that Paul was talking to, they were very familiar with long-term committed same-sex relationships. We have that in the historical record. So Paul Paul knew what he was doing when he said, this, this can't work, this isn't acceptable to God. Secondarily, Paul places no qualifications on the behavior. He doesn't, again, similarly to what God did in Leviticus, he doesn't say, but if it's committed, if it's long-term, it's a different case. No, he's just talking about the activity itself. And we have Paul's argument in Romans 1 that's even more critical. We're going to spend a lot of time here, the majority of our time here in this morning. And folks, please bear with me. I, I mean, I know... I feel like I can almost see, like, not necessarily in this room, but in the spirit, there's just a divide, you know. The older we are, the grayer-haired we are, we're comfortable with this. The younger we are, we're tempted to feel like, man, that is just wrong. Like, that is just prejudice. That is just bigoted. That's just like racism. That's oppressive. I completely, completely sympathize with that. Like, I do. If it wasn't for God's word, I wouldn't understand why there was anything wrong with it. I mean, I wouldn't understand why there's anything wrong with premarital activity. Apart from God's word, apart from God's spirit convicting me that that I need to see what I can't see apart from his miraculous grace. I I, I would think the same things if that's tempting you to feel that way. And I don't want to be hard at anybody. This is hard. Like, this is hard stuff to talk about. Our brokenness is difficult. I have my areas of brokenness that are significant daily struggles for me. So, I just hope you hear my heart in that. I want to look at Romans 1 and expand from Romans 1 in a couple other different places. This is some of the craziest, if I could use that kind of colloquial word, most fascinating, most thick, hardest to grasp for me, theology and scripture. So, hopefully we'll get little bits of it. But Remember, keep those questions uh, on the docket for me, if this is confusing to you. But in Romans 1, Paul begins explaining the need for the gospel. He's trying to explain why we need Jesus. And he starts with this sweeping arc of human rebellion and the effects it's had. And he begins by proclaiming the root of all human suffering. He says this in Romans 1, 18 and forward. The wrath of God, God's anger is revealed 
It's revealed right now from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. They have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This is Paul's way of saying the heavens and the earth, every molecule, every atom, every breath, every liquid, gas, or, or solid proclaims made, created, sourced in something, someone. And intuitively deep down inside, We bury that. And God's wrath is upon man because even though deep in his heart, man knows there is a God. There must be, you know, the old sound of music song. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. We all know it. Nobody walks outside and sees a 72 Chevy Camaro and say, wow, that just evolved from nature. (laughs) It just came to be. But the things God has made are billion times more complex than a 72 Chevy Camaro. And we intuitively really, really deep down inside, we all know this. When we come up to our house and the door is open, we don't say, oh, things happen. We say, how did that door get busted open? I'm not going inside there. Something caused that. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows there's a moral law. Everybody knows there's a right and wrong. And if you don't believe me, go up to an atheist and smack him in the face. He won't say to you, how interesting. There's no good or evil. I've been smacked in the face. I have no opinion about it. He'll say, why did you do that? Or he'll clock you back or he'll run away. Because deep down inside, he knows that's crazy. It's not right. But we've buried it, Paul says. And God says in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of a mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul explains the fundamental root of all our problems. It's not our sexual sin. The fundamental root of all our problems is that we rejected God's right to be treasured as God over us. And we've come instead to treasure the creation over him. We've exchanged the glory and greatness of God for the glory of the things he's made. We've traded the giver for the goodies. And that's our greatest, greatest insult to God. It's the greatest and worst sin, and it's the root of everything else. All other sins in Romans 1 that Paul lays out, and he lays out a parade of them. They exist. Listen, they exist not just as the root of this sin. This is what's so sobering. All other sins that Paul lays out in Romans 1, they exist 
as a judgment from God upon mankind for rejecting him. God gives people over. When we said to God, God, we don't want you. He says, okay, I'm going to hand you over to you then. It's as if God is saying, if you will not have my heart, in which is all goodness and moral sanity and light and truth and peace and order, then you will be imprisoned in your own hearts without me. If you will not submit to my heart, I will give you over to your own. And the rest of Romans 1 is a catalog of every kind of futile reality that comes about because we reject the only source of goodness, the only source of sanity, the only source of peace, the only source of rationality. Paul says, as a result of rejecting God, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, they're slanderers, they're haters of God, they're insolent, they're haughty, boastful, inventing evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. That's where we end up without God. Without his common grace restraining a society, that's where our society goes deeper and deeper. And what we see in Romans 1 is a massive, tragic reversal of the creator's will for his creation. It's a massive reversal of the creator's will for his creation as a result of man rejecting their creator. And before Paul gets to that latter catalog of sins I just read out, he starts with one in particular. Like the first sin he goes to after he says, Hey, mankind, back when you had a choice, before I handed you over, you rejected me. That's what you did with your freedom. And so I'm going to hand you over to yourselves. And the first sin he brings up is the sexual sins. So before he gets that larger category that everybody lives in, he says this. As a result of us rejecting God as our God, he says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Keep going. Yep, there you go. To impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among them, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, contrary to God's created purpose, And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. God is talking about same-sex behavior and passion. Now these two paragraphs are full of incredible implications. First, notice again that what man does in his heart first is turn from the truth about God and trade that in for a lie. And the lie is this. God is not my greatest treasure. I don't owe him that love, worship, and loyalty he deserves of all things, above all things. I don't have to see God as my God. I will reject God as my God, and I will make created things my greatest treasure. I will make myself my greatest treasure. My own desires, I will make other people or the things God's created, I will make them my greatest treasure. And I will suppress the truth about God for myself. So just as man turns his relationship with his creator upside down, opposite from what it's supposed to be, 
and lives a lie in his heart. Watch this. Follow me here. Just as he turns his relationship with his creator upside down, opposite from what it's supposed to be, and lives a lie in his heart, so now God gives man over to a creation opposite of what is it supposed to be. So now man lives a lie, not just in his heart towards his creator, but in his body towards the creation. There's almost a symmetrical poet, po- poetry to this. Just as our Godward relationship, our most sacred relationship, becomes inverted, distorted, and reversed from what it's supposed to be, so our closest human relationships, the sexual relationships, are now distorted, inverted from what they were supposed to be. Do you see that? We can see this more clearly if we take a look at Ephesians 5 and more about God's purpose for the sexual relationship. Do you remember what the man and the woman union is supposed to be an image of? Anybody remember what the man and the woman union united is supposed to be an image of? In Ephesians 5, Christ and the church. From the beginning of time, Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, marriage, that one flesh union between one man and one woman, is supposed to be a reflection of the Creator's relationship with the creation. His intimate, faithful, eternal covenant love with His people. Between God and mankind, between Christ and his bride, between creator and creation. With that in mind, listen to Ephesians 5. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to, ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we were members of his body. <laughs> Man, you're playing the role of Jesus. Wife, you're playing the role of the church. Man, you're playing the role of creator. Wife, you're playing the role of creation. Creator, creation, united, becoming one. Christ and his bride, becoming one. The intimacy God desired from the beginning of time. And then Paul takes us all the way back to creation itself. He explains all this by going right back to the creation. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. The two different become one. This mystery is great. I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Paul is opening our eyes and saying, this mystery of one man, one woman, one flesh union, God is speaking of Christ and the church. God is speaking of himself and his people, of creator, creation, united in harmony, the way they're supposed to be. 
Paul says that man and woman, one flesh union is a mysterious metaphor for God and his people. But now. Because man has rejected this picture of God. Being over him. Because man started his problems by rejecting the creator. In right relationship with the creation. When he rejected God. In judgment. God says. If you're rejecting my relationship. With you. In judgment. The metaphor for that relationship. Your relationship with your wife. Will be distorted. If you're going to trash. And reject me. Then the reflection. Of our relationship. Mankind and God will also bear destruction, inversion, distortion. Instead of God and mankind meeting in this beautiful metaphor of marriage, as a man unites with a woman, now God and mankind separate and divide, even in the metaphor itself. Man, who is to represent God, draws away from the woman who represents mankind, and he cleaves to another man in a terrible reversal. Creator separating from creation. And woman who is to represent the church. Draws away from Christ. Into herself. She stays away and pulls away from the creator. And binds herself with creation. In a terrible reversal. In all of these things we're seeing. The creator creation relationship is desecrated. It's distorted. It's perverted. It's reversed. I'm so afraid that you're just like, what is he talking about? I I hope this is, there's no way we can sit and have coffee and talk right now, but I see this and I don't know if I'm explaining it well, but, But this is why it won't do to say the Bible doesn't have any problems with same-sex relationships as long as they're lifelong and monogamous. No. Any same-sex relationship represents a distortion of the purpose of sexuality to image God's love for mankind and Christ's love for his church because it's only imaged when the man plays his part to be Christ, and the woman plays her part to be the church, and those two come together as one. Does, do you understand? Okay. <laughs> it's not about longevity or commitment. It's about imaging God and his story. And recognize the gravity here. If the reversal, if this distortion of the natural order in our sexuality and our inability to image what God wanted us to image, not just in same-sex marriage, but in all kinds of sexual deviancies, by the way. For instance, premarital sex is a sign of God not being faithful to his creation, but being adulterous towards it. Not taking it as his prized possession, but treating it selfishly. But in this situation we're talking about today, if this distortion of the natural order is the result of God's judgment of our rejection of him. If our sexual disorders are a result of our first rejection of our creator. Then our greatest problem isn't our sexual disorders. It's idolatry. We have rejected God 
And now, as a consequence, that's why I'm bound to this sin of anger. Or that's why I'm bound to this sin of laziness. Or same-sex perversions. While there is an element of choice in my sins, there's also this prior element that God has imprisoned me so that I cannot make the right choice. I'm, I'm free to choose, but I'm free to choose only to sin. Since every choice will be tainted in some respect by my rejection of God and the consequences. We're all born with sinful dispositions. All of us, whether we're gay or straight, all of us have this predisposition. David said, I was sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Once mankind rejected God, all of mankind was poisoned. Once Adam and Eve made that choice, all of who we were was in them. You can't separate you and I from Adam and Eve any more than you can separate a drop of ocean from the ocean it came from. It's where we came from. It's where we're rooted. It's our spiritual DNA. My heart naturally is corrupt from birth, and therefore my choices will always be corrupt. Children can be born and are born with a bent towards sexual deviancy, just as they can be born with a bent towards selfishness, arrogance, anger, and laziness. And listen, this has implications for how we treat our friends in the LGBTQ community. I don't mean this pejoratively. I don't mean to forget any letters. (laughs) I'm not getting them right. I don't mean that as a sarcastic remark, but... You're not going to win someone to Christ or convict them or win an argument on the Bible's ground simply to say, you chose that. You chose that lifestyle freely. No, I don't think it's that simple. God is telling us that man's nature itself has been corrupted. The fall affected all of creation, including all that we are in body, mind, and soul. It was all, Romans 8 says, given over to futility. So that we might feel this futility and flee to God. And so since all of creation is affected, it would be in perfect keeping with the Bible for us to find that there are genetic considerations with regard to sexual preference. Look, my genes were broken a long time ago. I'm genetically disposed to addiction. I I think I am. Just look at my parents and where it came from. I'm genetically disposed to laziness. I'm genetically supposed to impatience and anger. I'm genetically disposed to cancer and death. It's all part of creation's destructive heritage. And so it would be no surprise if my natural desire for same-sex relationships or for gender transition, if that was my temptation, that they're not... It wouldn't be a surprise if I felt those murmurings when I was four. It would be no surprise that there were desires that grew up with me as my body grew. Because my body is broken too. So next week we're going to talk more about this. How we walk in love. But let me just try to land where we started. God's opposed to homosexual behavior. The Old Testament proclaimed it. Jesus proclaimed it implicitly. Paul proclaimed it explicitly. It's actually a picture of God's judgment for our first rejection of him. And that's why the solution, whether it's same-sex attraction, promiscuity, pornography, it's not first and foremost fixing our sin. It's being restored to a right relationship with our creator. And that's what Jesus does again and again and again. That's what he does when we get saved. And that's what he does every day of our lives with his new mercies. He continues to restore us. He gives us the power to turn from our sinful desires to turn from our inborn sinful proclivities 
and to walk with him, either to bear up in, in walking in a faithful monogamous heterosexual marriage or to w- live a life of celibacy in this issue with a lot of help and a lot of care. There's more to say about this, but I'm running out of time. But I, I hope today you, you, you've at least been hopefully exhorted to consider what the Bible says about these things in the bigger picture. And again, this is, this is something we're going to talk about again next. I think Matt Macon might be coming next Sunday, but the Sunday after we're going to stay on this, um, this issue for a while. It's just such an important issue and First Corinthians is going to keep getting into it. But, but I pray that wherever you are in your sexual brokenness, any kind of brokenness, that today you would once again sense that your solution isn't first and foremost you fixing yourself, but it's Jesus. He's come to change you. He's come to give you the grace you need again today to pick out yourself up the, off the mat and walk. And as your right relationship with your creator is nourished, is maintained, is protected, is fought for, so everything else, your anger issues, your laziness issues, your sexual disorder issues, they're also being attended to by the great physician, by the savior of our souls. Let's come to him again this morning. Buzz, would you mind just closing some prayer? And Lord, uh, we thank you for your word um, that transcends our feelings, transcends our culture. Uh, you knew um, what we'd be facing today, to, you know, 2,000, 3,000 years ago when these words were being written. Um, and just like... Any other temptation that we face, we always have to um, compare it against your word, Lord. Because there's a lot of things, Lord, that we believe in our hearts that are wrong. It goes against your word. And we're thankful for your word because it corrects us and changes us. And your Holy Spirit convicts us and gives us the power to... Do things that we would not normally want to do or be able to do. So we thank you, Lord, for your spirit of truth that is in us, that you gave to us as a result of your life, your death, and resurrection. And we just pray that you work in our hearts to um, change our lives and help to lovingly um, help those around us who could be struggling with this issue of same-sex attraction. So we thank you. We praise you. Thank you for Albert for being uh, caring enough to bring this message to the church, Lord. They're not easy. And thank you for the gifts you've given him to uh, shepherd us. You're the good shepherd, Lord, and Albert's a good shepherd. He's modeling you in this way. So we thank you for that, and we uh, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.